We are continuing our walk. We're almost, we've got about three or four weeks left of our journey through the book of Revelation. We thought that preaching through the book of Revelation would handle some of our space issues. We thought that, thought that would do it, but it didn't do it. Um, but we're calling our study of the book of Revelation um, reframing reality, because here's what we believe about Revelation. We don't believe that the book of Revelation was written to be an end times predictor book for people to read thousands of years later. We don't believe it was given to the church only to be accessible or important when the end times began. That's not what we believe. What we believe is that the book of Revelation was written to an actual people, a group of seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century, and they were facing real things, and they needed the real vision and the real storyline of Revelation to give them something that they needed in real time. So here's what Revelation is. It's a revealing, it's a revelation of, it's a pulling back the curtain of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he plans to do. It's a vision of Jesus and reality in a way that we would never see it if left to our own five senses. So it's a crazy vision with dragons and multi-headed beasts and all kinds of things going on, but it is meant to show you an apocalyptic, allegorical, symbolic vision of reality. So we're looking at the reality that Revelation shows us through these different themes. What themes of reality is John being shown as he's in the heavenly realms getting this vision of reality and of Jesus? So we've looked at all these different themes, a bunch of different ones. Last week, we began uh, looking at the perpetrators of Jesus, the, the enemies against Jesus, the people who are seeking to wage war against Jesus and his bride and his kingdom, uh, the church. So there's three main perpetrators against Jesus um, all throughout scripture and in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're only looking at two of them. Last week, we looked at the dragon, the accuser, Satan. This week, we look at the next one. And I'm just gonna warn you, this is, this, is, this is something, this is a crazy chapter, okay? If you were in small group this week, you discussed this chapter potentially. Uh, There's a lot, okay? It's the next enemy against, next perpetrator against Jesus and his bride, the church. So here we go. Revelation chapter 17, we're gonna read the whole chapter and it is a doozy. Revelation 17, starting in verse one, this vision of reality that John was shown. Revelation 17, one through 18, verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into, the, into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth found, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does not come, he must remain only a little while. 
As for the beast that was and is not and is an eighth, but is, it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are able to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those, who, those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Verse 18, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the king's of the earth. Okay. <laughs> it's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. So biblically speaking, like from start to finish in scripture, we see it on the first page of scripture. There have always been perpetrators against Jesus, enemies against Jesus. We met the first one last week, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, who is the accuser of God's people. But biblically speaking, there are three main enemies of Jesus that are talked about all throughout scripture, and they get kind of personified in Revelation in these three main images, these three main caricatures of the enemies against Jesus. And the, the biblical categories are this from the beginning, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are things that kind of wage war against Jesus and his precious bride, the church, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Last week, we saw the devil, the dragon, the accuser, and now we meet the next perpetrator against Jesus, who is personified here by this woman who is also a city. But you need to know that this whole chapter, this woman who ends up riding this beast, who also is Babylon the Great, this great city, she represents, and everything about this chapter represents the world, the kingdom of the world. So here we go. That's what we're diving into today. The world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the personification and the incredible apocalyptic vision of the kingdom of the world and what it offers to God's people. Here we go. So verse 1 and 2 and verse 18, we meet this woman who is also this city. You ready? Verse 1 and 2, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And skipping down all the way to verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This woman, this seductive harlot, is also the great city. Now, please hear me. This is not a chapter about how like your Bible Belt Church taught you that sex, drugs, and rock and roll is what's wrong with the world. That's not what this is talking about. It's far deeper than that. That when we look at the world, the kingdom of the world, here's what this represents and is represented to us in this city, is do you know what the world wants to offer you? Do you know what the kingdom of the world wants to offer you? What does the world offer you? Well, whatever she, whatever the world, the, the great city of the world is offering you, it must be good because verse two says that the kings of the earth all want it. These are kings, these are kings of all the earth that they have everything. They have all the power and notoriety and kingdoms and they still want what this woman, woman in this city is offering to them. They still are drawn to her. 
And it uses the imagery of a seductive woman, but it's also using the imagery of the great city because here's what the seductive woman and here's what the great city, here's what they have in common. Here's why this metaphor is, is both things and it's trying to communicate this same thing is that those things call to you. Those things beckon you. Those things stand on the street corner. It was from our call to worship. Lady Folly from Proverbs 9 is another personification of this. They stand on the street corner and they scream to you with all of their seduction, come and get what you want from me. That's why you're all in this city anyway. This city drew you in. It was beckoning to you. It was wooing you. Come and get what you want from this city. And the thing about this perpetrator against Jesus, the world, the kingdom of the world, is that it's offering you something that you think you need. You and I are drawn to it. Verse three will go on to tell us that this woman is riding this marvelous beast, which is a cameo of the other perpetrator against Jesus, the great beast. And this beast is full of power. So you take it all together, this woman who rides this beast, who is also the great city, it's putting it all together, this metaphor and saying, this adorned, powerful, beautiful, illustrious entity is calling to you. It's wooing you. It's drawing you into itself. So what, does, what do we need to see about that reality, this perpetrator against Jesus? And what do we need to see that John saw? Okay, look at verse six and seven. It says, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of this woman. Okay, so get this. John's in the heavenly realm. He's having heaven literally revealed to him in this apocalyptic vision. And he sees this woman, he sees this city, and she's adorned with all this purple and gold, and she's beautiful, and she's radiant, and this great city that all are drawn to. It's all of its power and seduction and beauty and all of it. And what does he do when he sees it? What does he do? When I saw her, I marveled greatly. John Mar- John's in heaven, and he's marveling at this city, this kingdom of the world. That word marvel is the same biblical word for wonder and awe and like worship. Like he's drawn into it. Something about what he sees seduces him. Something, he see, something about what he sees draws him in. It, it flutters his heartstrings and he's saying, oh, 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 oh. I, I, I don't know what's there, but I'm drawn to it. I'm, I'm beckoned to it. I'm wooed to it. I'm, something in me is magnetic towards this other entity. It's calling to him and his heart is stirred towards it. Now, anytime that happens in scripture, anytime any human is drawn to marvel at something other than Jesus, it's called idolatry. The worship of idols to marvel at something that is not Jesus. The worship of idols is perhaps the most repeated failure of the people of God from start to finish in scripture. In the Old and New Testaments, in in the ancient Near East, and in the first century Roman Empire, um, there were actual idols, like carved images, like the the goddess statue of Aphrodite and the god of Zeus and, and, and Jupiter, all these things that were drawing people and worshipers to come and bow down to this carved image of stone. That's what an idol is. And we don't have those in that way today, but it, mean, it does not mean we are less idolatrous. We marvel at things too. And in the modern day, it's not statues, but we marvel at money. We marvel at someone's beauty. We marvel at positions of power. We marvel at lifestyles. We marvel at perceived freedoms. 
We marvel at it. We're drawn to it. We, we, we're, there's something in us that is magnetic towards these things that are being offered to us. We marvel at the world just like they did. We're no better. And when John is marveling, this, this is what unearths the idolatry in us. This is, this is such a pointed question from the angel. When John is marveling at him, did you hear what the angel asked him? Why do you marvel? What is it about that thing that is enticing you? Which could be said to us about any of the things that we marvel at other than Jesus. Why are you marveling at that lifestyle? What is it about that that's drawing you in? Why are you marveling at that marriage? Why do you think that if you could finally be married, you would actually have everything you wanted? Why are you, why are you drawn to that? Why are you marveling at beauty? Why are you marveling at that person's body? Why are you marveling at that money? Why are you marveling at more power and more position and more fame? Why are you marveling at that? See, this is the most invasive part about looking at our idols. Your idols, my idols, will always show you what you really want. If you and I would dare to answer the question honestly that we marvel at all kinds of things that are not Jesus, you will begin to take the steps down into your soul and you will begin to get really close with this innate part of you called desire, which some of us are scared of. You were never allowed to have any of those. And so now to the thought of, oh, I have all this desire, what do I do with this deep eternal well called desire in me? And looking at your idols will show you what you actually crave. Looking at your idols will show you what your deepest longings are. And it's unnerving. Because guess what it will show you if you want to get in touch with answering the angel's questions? Why do you marvel at that? If you want to answer that honestly, it will show you the real you. It will show you what you actually desire. It will show you all the places you're running to to try to satiate this deep longing within you. That can be unnerving, it's like the mirror of Irised in Harry Potter. Yes, any Harry Potter fans? No, no one raised their hand. My gosh, mirror of Irised. Mirror of Irised is actually mirror of desire, spelled backwards. Bet you didn't know that. You probably did. But the mirror of desire, the mirror of Irised. Here's what's said about this mirror that Harry looks in. The mirror shows not your face, but your heart's desire. When you look in this mirror, it doesn't show you you, it shows you in your imagination the thing you truly long for. And here's what Dumbledore says about this mirror of Irised, mirror of desire. Dumbledore, right? Is he not the best? He's not quite Gandalf, but he's pretty good. Maybe they're the same, maybe they're brothers. Here's what Dumbledore says about the mirror of Irised. He says the most, it shows you the most desperate desire of a person's heart. And then he says this, a vision that has been known to drive men mad for men have wasted away before it. Because when you look in the mirror of Irised and it shows you what you really want, now you can't sit and lie and act like it's not true and try to pretend like, oh no, I don't really want that. The mirror is just showing you what you want. That's what your idols will do. They will show you what you really desire. They will show you what you really are longing for. They will show you why you're waking up. They'll show you what you're after and what you're craving. Because desire and idolatry are deeply intertwined. Because all of our idols offer us the satisfaction of the deepest longing within us. Come to me and I will give you what you really want. And they don't just offer it, they, they promise it. All of our idols make promises to us. They just can't deliver on them. They promise to satisfy the deepest part of us. So what kinds of things do our idols that we marvel at, 
What kinds of things do those things promise us? Three brief things. This is not exhaustive. But three things we, we typically want, generally speaking, from our idols at the deepest level. We want our idols to make us. We want our idols to sustain us. We want our idols to make us feel like we permanently belong. We want our idols to make us, to sustain us, make us feel like we permanently belong. Like we want our idols to make us. So for instance, if, I'm, if I marvel at more money, it's not that I just want more dollars in my bank account. Me marveling at money, here's what I actually want. I want the amount of money I make and have to actually tell me who I am. I want my money to give me an identity. It's not about the money that I make. It's what can my money make me into? I want something that I believe that thing, that wooing will give me. If I just made a little bit more, do you know who I would be then? Do you know what people would say about me then? Do you know who I would feel like I am then if I had it? So we will worship the God of money. We will marvel at the God of money. We will sacrifice ourselves to the God of money so that the money can make us into somebody we really want to be. Or how about this? We don't just want our idols to make us. We want our idols to sustain us. Like if I make an idol out of fame or if I make, hypothetically, an idol out of people liking me, okay? If I could finally get enough people to like me, I, just don't, I don't just want people's approval of me to actually make me into something. I want my knowledge of their approval of me to sustain me. Meaning, when there's like a dark night of the soul or I'm lonely or I'm afraid or I feel insecure, let me go back to my idol of people loving me and people approving of me and that'll make me feel good about myself. When I don't like who I am, maybe the idol that I've worshiped and created and marveled at, maybe it will finally take care of me. Feed me when I'm hungry. Nourish me when I'm malnourished. Comfort me when I'm afraid. Give me purpose when I feel insecure. Idol, can you do that for me? Idol, take care of me when I need you to. You'll probably know that you are wanting an idol to take care of you when you start phrases like this. In comparison to other people, you'll do this. Well, at least I don't, you know. At least, at least I don't do what they do. That at least I don't is you saying to your idol, I'm, I've kind of built this thing over here and I'm better than you and at least I don't do it the way that you do it. Man, that idol feels good for me right now. It's taking care of me right now. I'm sure none of you can relate. Lastly, here's what we want. We want our idols to make us, to sustain us. And then lastly, we want our idols to make us feel like we permanently belong. Maybe if I become successful enough, maybe if I sleep with someone else, maybe if I finally find true love, maybe if my kids turn out the way that I demand that they turn out, maybe then I will feel like I have a fortress to live in and that security of that fortress, nothing can hurt me anymore. We want our idols to do that for us. The biblical version of this, the biblical word for this is called a refuge. We want our idols to be our refuge, our place of safekeeping. If I do enough, become enough, am enough, I will finally feel safe and secure and I will finally feel like nothing can hurt me. We want our idols to make us, to sustain us, and to make us feel like we permanently belong. That's what the world offers you. And that's why in this passage, the kings of the world still want what this woman is offering to them. They have everything and they still want something to make them sustain them and make them feel like they permanently belong. That's what we're all thirsty for. That's what we all long for. If you long for those things, it does not mean you're broken. Your longing is not what makes you broken. It means you're human if you long for those things. Here's what is broken about you. 
is not what you long for. It's broken that you believe that this woman or this world or anything other than Jesus could satisfy that longing in you. That's what's broken in us. Not that you long for it. You were made to long for it. What's pro- the problem is, what's really broken about us is, I have this longing and I think that something other than Jesus can fill that longing. And so here's what John and we are shown next about this woman who is the kingdom of the world, the great city. It's not just what she offers. Here's what John really wants to show us about her. He wants to show us what her end is. Okay, this gets a little out there, but just follow along, okay? Buckle up, all right? Verse 14 through 17 is where we're gonna see this, and we're gonna go back to verse one as well, because this is what it shows. John wants to show us how this ends. Verse 14, they, he's talking about the woman and the beast, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Isn't this interesting? They the beast and his friends will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast. Okay, verse verse 14 through 17 just told you this. Follow the storyline of how this woman and this beast, who is also the great city, the kingdom of the world, follow the storyline and note this. In the end, they are all destroyed. They actually destroy each other. This beast that the woman is riding ends up turning on her and devouring her because that's what our idols do. None of them are ever satisfied enough and so they take from each other. They end up killing each other. One of the most repeated words in this entire chapter is to their destruction, to their destruction, to their destruction. Over and over and over again, we find in this vision that the woman, the city, the kingdom of the world ends in destruction. That's what the angel wants to show John about this whole chapter. He's saying, hey, I, I wanna show you the world and her idols. I wanna show you how they beckon to you. I wanna show you how they call to you and how they're adorned and how they're enticing. I wanna show you all that. But really, I wanna show you how they end. Look at verse one. Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. The whole thing starts at the beginning by, by the angel saying, I'm gonna show you this and you're gonna marvel at it and we gotta talk about why you're marveling at it but really I wanna show you how it all ends. I wanna show you their destruction. Why do we need to see how our idols end? Because if we could see the end of this woman, this city, if we could see what happens to them, we would marvel at them less often. See, she's destroyed Ironically, she's destroyed by the beast that she's, they're supposed to be on the same team because our idols devour each other. They kill each other off. They don't live forever. They end up eating each other into nothingness. Rewatch this week, uh, the opening scene of Thor, Love and Thunder. Yes, great movie. Christian Bale makes a big cameo. Sorry to ruin it. Uh, but he's, he shows up in this opening scene. He's a great bad guy. And he comes back to this God that he has sacrificed everything for. He's crawling through the desert and he finally finds this paradise. He finds this God that he sacrificed his own daughter for and he expects this God to give him the eternal bliss that he's sacrificed everything for. And the eternal God or the God that he worships said, no. So Christian Bale, the God butcher, kills him. 
slays that God because that's what all little G gods do. They kill each other. All little G gods end in destruction. They all die and they all die. Get this, get this. This is a biblical reality. All little G gods die because they were never truly alive to begin with. In other words, your idols, my idols, the things that we marvel at aren't real. Now, I know this gets a little metaphysical, a little philosophical. They're real in the sense that they, like, you can point to them and look at them and it's not, they're not a figment of your imagination. When I say they're not real, I mean this. They're hollow. They don't have life. They don't exist, truly. That comes out in this passage so many ways. There's a little, like, kind of poetic clue about that where John's trying to, the angel's trying to show John this beast and this woman, they're not even real. They don't have life in them. I know, I know they are drawing you, but they're not even real. Look, this, this phrase is repeated three times. We're gonna pluck one of them out. Look at the second half of verse eight. Darren, you can throw this up there. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because, it's talking about the woman and the beast, it was and is not and is to come. This is this poetic comparison that, that the angel is doing by showing John this. Do you know like the most repeated phrase about Jesus all throughout the book of Revelation? He was the one who was and is and is to come. And now this enemy, this woman, this great city, this enticer was and is not and is to come. It's trying to show you there's only one of these gods that's real. There's only one of these things to marvel at that actually has life in it. It was and it is not and it is to come, which says a lot about the nature of our idols. They actually can offer you nothing in reality. They can only offer you comfort in your past or your future, which aren't real right now. The only thing that's real is right now, and it is not. It cannot offer you a reality of comfort. It has no life in it. Listen to how the psalmist says this. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, tons of places in Jeremiah and Isaiah that are making a mockery of the idols of the people of God. Listen to Psalm 115. If you want to go there, you can. It's verses four through eight. If not, just trust me. This is what it says. Listen to this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Listen to this. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And then verse eight, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's what the psalmist just told you, which is what Revelation 17 is trying to show you. The things that we marvel at that are not Jesus, they aren't real. They don't last because they were never truly alive to begin with. That's what John and we need to see about our idols. What is their end? Their end is nothingness. Their end is hollow. And those who trust in them become like them. That's what this whole chapter of Revelation is trying to show you. It's showing you that if you trust in your idols to make you sustain you and make you permanently belong, you will end up just like them. Joseph Patton, our worship leader, told me about a poem this week by Percy Shelley. Ozymandias. Anybody read Ozymandias? I'm so cultured. I'm the only person in this room that's ever read it. Uh, no, Joseph's read it. He told me about it. Percy Shelley, Ozymandias. Essentially, this poem is about this great king, King Ozymandias, that you've never heard of, and that's the point. Ozymandias 
It tells the story of this desert traveler who stumbles underneath the sand of the desert, stumbles upon this stone statue that was made centuries before, and it's only half the statue. The top half has fallen off. It's just the legs of this great statue. But imprinted on the statue are the words of this grand king, Ozymandias, when he was at the height of his power. And here's what he says. This is what, it, this is what the statue says that's now buried under the sand and no one's ever seen it. Everyone's forgotten who Ozymandias was. It says this, look on, me, look on my works, ye mighty ones in despair says the half a statue in the dirt that no one's ever heard of. And it's this mockery of these idols that we erect and these, these men, these empires, these things we try to build, how they all fade into decay and oblivion. No one's ever heard of you, Ozymandias. That's the point. That's kind of what John is being shown here. Go, go ahead. Marvel at money, Marvel at power, marvel at sex and beauty and reputation, marvel at all those things. Run after them. Run into the arms of the seduction of this great city and all of its blinding lights and chase what it wants you to chase and build all the kingdoms that you think will deliver for you what you want them to deliver on. Can I show you how it ends? Maybe you wouldn't marvel at them so much, trust in them so much if you saw how they ended. That's the point of Revelation 17. They will all end in destruction. But even if you knew that, you would still marvel. You and I would still long. We would still have desire. You and I will always long to be made, always long to be sustained, always long to have a place to permanently belong. And so here's the invitation. Maybe the invitation of the whole book of Revelation. Would you marvel at the one who's actually real? Would you marvel at the one who was and who is and is to come? This chapter tells you, yes, the lamb conquers the beast and the woman. We've heard about the lamb conquering several times if you've been with us. But this chapter is not just trying to show you the lamb's conquering ability over his enemies. It's trying to show you the essence of the lamb. This lamb lasts. He's the last one standing because he's real. He endures. He is not only victorious over all the gods of the world that we marvel at, but because he is real, he will exist forever. And because that's who he is, if he is actually real, if he actually is the one who is, if he is the great I am, here's what that means for us. He is able to make you, sustain you, and make you feel like you permanently belong. One author that I read in an article this week said it this way, when we rest in the grounding of God to bear life in us, we become a God is, therefore I am people. God is, therefore we are people. Mystic author James Finley put it this way, God loves us into existence. Like true, true existence, true reality, true humanity. God loves us into existence. Jesus is the only true reality. And so this woman that ends, this beast that ends, the kingdom of the world that ends, they all end in desolation. They all end in meaninglessness. They all end in nothingness. That's why you shouldn't marvel at them. But God doesn't end. And because he doesn't end, neither will you. That's why you should marvel at him. He can actually give you what you long for. And so the city is still gonna have its blinding lights and the world is still gonna try to seduce you and draw you in to promise you that it can give you what you desire. But if you know how they end, the lights become a little less bright 
and they lose their grip on our hearts just a little if we're able to see their end. And once we believe that, we then marvel at the only God that lasts. Let's pray. Jesus, we marvel at many things. We want them to give us what we desire. And so just like John in this passage, would we hear the, the soft rebuke? Why do you marvel at it? Let me show you the mystery of this woman. The mystery is not that mysterious. It ends. And all the things we worship and are drawn to, all the things that entice us, Jesus cannot make us, they cannot sustain us. They cannot make us feel like we permanently belong. And so Jesus, would you do that now as we confess, as we repent? Give us the courage to repent, to lay down the marveling at the nothingness. And worship you, Jesus, the only one that lasts. We ask all this in your name, amen.